Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Guide and lead us as what you'd want us to see. And we thank you for the time that we have had to just discuss other things and that are spiritual and, and leading towards you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 7, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, and enter in at the gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger and the fatherless and the widow and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after the other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this space, this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. So here we have the message from God. In verse 2 it says, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. This is what he's telling Jeremiah to do. Go to the temple. Go to the temple where people are supposed to be coming in to worship God. Great place to go if you want to get a message to the Jewish people. Go to the temple. Uh, and it says, And proclaim the word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah that, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. And I just want to talk about this one statement, to worship the Lord. This one stood, struck me at the place because I got thinking about what does it mean to worship? And I haven't read all the verses. There's only 102 verses in the Bible that talk about worship. All right. Uh, just a few. But I did go into the dictionary. In the Hebrew, it literally means to bow down prostate or pay homage and this is kind of an interesting thing that in the Middle Eastern and the Asian uh, world when you meet somebody they bow even to this day those those nations will bow and especially in in Asia the lower you bow the more honor you're giving to that person all right some of those bows are just kind of a nod of the, nod of the head. You know, I don't respect you. I don't think you're somebody important. So I, I'm the great one. You're not. I'm just going to you know, bow my head. Others are you bow almost fully 90 degrees to, you know, toward the ground. And, and you're saying you are to be respected. I'm even willing to show you my neck. And you know, you're, th you're this important. And this is the idea behind worship of God. How much honor do we show God when we worship him? When we come in there, it also talks about being prostrate. What does that mean? Get down on your face in the dirt. And some of the times when I've prayed, you know, some of the times I've prayed, I've actually gotten down and just been prostrate before God and been touched. And some of those are the best prayer times I've had. You know, you go, might fall asleep if I did that. Well, you know, I understand that too. But when we worship God, how is it that we're reacting to him? Are we bowing? Are we being prostrate? Are we paying homage? What is homage? Giving glory and, and, and uh, praise to the person. All right? The idea of homage is when you go before the king and you know, for the Europeans where they did the curtsies and the, 
and, and, the, and the kneeling bows that they would do. Same type of thing here. How do we stand before God? Now, in, in our Christian world, we kind, you know, we kind of go, well, we're, we're God's children. He's Father. I can just go run up and jump in his lap. And yes, there's a truth to that statement. But it's also true that he is the almighty God that deserves honor and respect. And we have to walk this fine line between it when we teach it. Because too many times we think of him as the good buddy, you know, the buddy that I can ask anything for and just, you know, grab. And yes, there's that part that we want to say, yes, that is a true statement. He is our father that wants to bless us. He is our father that wants to give us great things. He is the father that we can crawl up in, into his lap and say, oh, hi, dad, you know. But he's also the God of the universe that deserves respect and honor. And there's that fine line between the disrespect of that that when and the respect of the king of the universe that we do. And so I was been thinking a lot about this and the idea of of worship in the English dictionary, at least in the uh, 1800 uh, Webster's dictionary, it is a title, it is a title, your worship. And it's still used amongst royalty to this day. Your worship. You have something. You are in a higher position than we are. It's a title of respect and honor. All right. So that is one of these words that are in it. And it's the act of paying divine honor, reverence, and homage to God. And you know, we need to get to this place where we also understand that our worship to God is what he expects. 102 times in the scriptures, and almost every one of them that I glanced at were about God, worshiping God. And so where are we with worship? How do we worship God? You know, how do we come to God? Part of our worship will be in giving of tithes and offerings and service, giving our time to him, our, our, our own stuff to him. Some of it is to just sing praises to him. Some of it is to read his word. Some of it is prayer. You know, prayer is even a tricky thing because most people, and we talked about that earlier, prayer for most people is give me, give me, give me. And God is saying, I just want a conversation with you. you know, and we think about that. If we, as his church, are his bride, and the only time we ever come up to him is say, give me, give me, give me, how would we feel if that happened to us? The only time our, our special person came to us, uh, I need some money. I need a car, I need this, I need that, you know, no, I, yeah, oh yeah, I do love you, you know, you know, uh, bat the eyes and, and give the smile and, and do what it takes to get what you want. <laughs> How many of us do that to God in, mo in, in so often? God, I'm going to do this if you do this and I want this, so to get what I want, I'm going to do what I think you want me to do. You know, my daughter used to do that every once in a while when she was growing up. You know, she'd come up, bat in the eyes, and, Daddy, what do you want? Nothing. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, what is it that you want? <laughs> you know, but how often do we do that kind of thing to God? If that's all we have, or we we're, might be the relationship we think we want, but it's really not the relationship that we want if we think about it. It's hard to have a relationship with an invisible God. And it really is. It's hard to worship something we don't see. It's hard to talk to somebody we don't see. It's hard to understand that, we, that he is actually wanting to listen to us. 
Because what is most of our conversation with people? We look and see how are they reacting? How are they receiving what we're, what we're saying? And when we talk to God, there is no physical reaction by it. I can't, I can't see how he's reacting. I always think, I would just love to have one hug. <laughs> and yet, he does give us those hugs. He does give us the attention if we're paying attention to the spiritual world and watching how he reacts. And so the question for us is, how are we reacting? Are we truly worshiping God? You know, when we, in our prayer guides, we have, I have that little acronym for prayer, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Our request of God should be the very last thing we're doing after we've done everything else for, you know, adoration. We look at all through the scriptures, how many times did they adore God? God, look at all the wonderful things you're doing. You've created this beautiful earth. You've done this. You've done that. You've, you've gotten me out of trouble. You've rescued the people. You know, and then confess our sins. If we are faithful, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he's just asking us, and then we get thankful. I think we should be thankful before we ask for things. To say, God, yeah, you know, you gave me this, you gave me this, you gave me this, thank you for all this. And oh, by the way, God, I could use some of this. But you know, if we spend all our time in those other three areas, we don't spend a lot of time in the requesting side of things. And when we do, it becomes very personal. And most of my requests, actually, most of my requests are for other people more than they are for me. Uh, you know, because I know God's going to bless me, so I don't worry about it. And maybe I don't pray enough about things for myself, but I usually pray more for other people's blessings than I do for my own. And yet that would be really good. What if everybody in the church prayed for everybody else's blessings rather than their own? You know, we only have a small church of 18, but that would be 17 people praying for you, and, and you're praying for 17 people. You probably have a lot more needs met. Well, all of our relations suffer because we are selfish people. Bottom line. And the world, all their relationships in the world are based on what are you doing for me? You know, what, and maybe not even that blunt, but I'm with you because I feel good when I'm with you because you like me and I feel good or you do this for me. And maybe I'll do a few things nice for you because I like the feeling of what you're doing to me. So that's my relationship with God. <laughs> we take that relationship on the flesh to the, to the level of God and God is saying, I want it to another, to another level. And this is the hard part because we deal in the flesh we, in all of this. This is where unconditional love comes into process when we start really learning objective love and we say, I'm going to love this person no matter what they do. I'm going to love this person in spite of how they behave to me. In a marriage, that, that marriage should be built on unconditional objective love that I'm going to love this person you know, we get married, hopefully we do love each other physically and we're getting something out of the relationship. But what happens in the world is five to seven years into the marriage, those feelings are no longer there. And then they get divorced and what do they normally say? I never really, I don't think I ever loved you. In reality, they're speaking the truth. They were infatuated with each other and they had good feelings toward each other, but they never loved each other. And this is the thing that God says to us. He goes, I love you. And God's love is unconditional, objective love. And he says, I have chosen to love you. And because I have chosen to love you and I do not change, I will never stop loving you. 
Now, we can never have that kind of unconditional love. But our striving should be to love unconditionally, objectively. And that is what will hold marriages together. All right? Because a marriage is going to have those times when people are not infatuated with each other. And if love has not been chosen, they won't stay together. Which is why we're in a place where almost every marriage in our day and age, because it's not built on objective, unconditional love, falls apart. Because they get to the hard parts. Well, I didn't love you, and I didn't, and they, they tell you the same thing. Well, I don't love you either. Well, let's just separate because we're unreconcilable differences. We've all, we're both changed, and we don't love each other anymore. We'll go find somebody else that we can love. And because they don't understand love, they will never find somebody that they love, truly love. And God is telling us, love like he loves. And this is why I, I like the term un, uh, objective love more than unconditional love, because that's what most people define. Agape love, that's unconditional love. Well, yes, that's true, but it's also objective chosen love. It takes out all the feeling, all the emotion. God loves us because he says that he loves us. He chose to love us. I like that. That means no matter what I do, God is still going to love me because he's chosen to love me. And it's hard. We all know relationships where we just get so sick of somebody's actions and the way they're behaving that we choose that we find it difficult to love them. And sometimes we don't want to, to love them. And because we can change, we might take our objective love and change our mind. But I love that God does not change. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter how I behave, he is going to love me. And this is what's very important in our relationships. If we truly choose to love and remind ourselves what love truly is, we can be loving. Now, it's tough because we're fallen nature and all of that. It makes it very hard. And there's times when somebody keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you're going, you are really making it hard to love you right now. Uh, you know, and we probably won't tell them if we're smart. <laughs> uh, but there is times when we're just going, I'm finding it very hard to love this person because of what's going on. But that is what objective love's all about. And that then leads to worship. I love this person just because I choose to love them. I worship them. It's true. It is hard to do. And part of the worship of God is to adore on bended knee. To adore. You know, the wise men came to Jesus in the, in, the, in the house after he was born and worshipped him. They bowed down before him and presented their gifts. Now, where is our attitude with God when it comes to worship? And I've been thinking a lot about this, and I'm going to be doing a study on worship probably, so this is probably going to come up a few more times over the next uh, month as I read all the verses on worship and study deeper into worship. Because it's just one of those things that grabbed me. How many of us, myself included, do not truly worship God that much? Because we don't have this idea of he is the great one. Because in our flesh, somehow we recognize that God is great, but we want to be great too. We want to have some kind of honor. And I've seen it over and over where people decide they have to have honor. And very few people can just deflect it and say, okay, you you want, you, want, you want the glory? You want, the, you want this? Be my guest. And it's hard, but in the long run, it's very worth it 
the times that I have done it has been good to let other people get honored, let them get, get the glory they want and know that I'm, God is still recognizing what I've done. And I was talking earlier, you know, today, you know, how many times do people in charge of things get all the credit when it's other people doing the work? Now, now you may have trained them, you may have given them the opportunities, so you, they, without you it may not have happened, but they did all the work. I thought back when I was a manager, you know, how many times, yes, I trained the people, I gave them the place, but I got all the credit for their good service given, given back to me, and it's like, well, it's all them, they're doing it. But, and we need to understand that God is willing to give us credit. If we want that credit, he'll, he'll just say, okay, you want the credit, take it. And that's wood, hay, and stubble is going to burn up. Other times I'm saying, God, it's all you, and mean it. I know many Christians, they all go, it's all God, it's all God, and you can see the pride all over them. You know, and it's like, you know, shut up, just take the pride and quit, and quit, quit pointing to God when you don't mean it. All right? uh, and they're saying the right words, but they don't mean it. And you can tell who they are. You know, and there's others saying, thank God, thank God, you know, and, they, and they mean it. You know, and this is the wonderful thing. Everything we have is because of what Christ does for us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that mean? I can't do much of anything, if at all anything, without him. Because I'm going to mess it up. In my flesh, I am going to mess up anything that I try to do. Because I, in my flesh, am going to try to get glory. I'm doing it for me. When I was working in the restaurants, I'd look back and say I was doing a lot of things right, but I was doing it for my glory. I wanted the recognition. I wanted the, the, the acknowledgement. And the point that we come when we're really serving God is when we can let other people get the glory and not need it, even if they don't deserve the glory. And that's really tough when they don't deserve the glory at all and they get the glory. And it's like, but God knows who, the, who, who deserves the glory, which is him. But he lets us get the glory as well. And that's wonderful. But he says that we are, if we want to be a great leader, we need to be the servant. And this is something that I have seen over and over. Now, I have seen pastors who wouldn't, wouldn't pick up a, anything on a floor or do a dish or do anything. They're not servants to their church, and, they're, and they expect to be honored. And I've seen some churches that actually, one of, the, one of the Chuck Smith has talked about it, and even the church that I spent most of my life in. Pastors, when they wanted to be a pastor, Usually the first job they would get to do, go clean the bathrooms. You know, go, go take care of the, go take care of the uh, property. Well, how is that doing anything spiritual? Nope, you're not, you're not pastor material. You're not willing to serve. You're not pastor material. Now, whether that's the best decision or not, I don't know, but I understand that idea, to be a servant and to be worship, to worship God and say, God, I am yours. I am your servant to do with as you desire. That's part of homage. When they went to the king or the queen, you were their servant. You were to do what they told you to do. And oftentimes that wasn't necessarily what you wanted to do. All right? Uh, during the monarch's days in, in Europe, during the feudal times, you had a business. Your, your business, your mom, your dad had it. Your grandfather had it. Your great-grandfather had it but the building and the property and the business belonged to the king and the queen. If they decided it was to be given to somebody else, they would come in and just take it away from you because it was theirs. That is God. He owns 
everything. Now, he doesn't just capriciously take things away from us, but he also says it's all mine. And this is why it's funny when the world will say, why did God let this stuff happen? Well, because he's the owner and he can do what he wants with it. Now, why would, what do you do to your car? If I want to change the paint color on my car, I want to destroy my car, I want to fix my car up you know, really fancy, it's my car to do what I want to. God has the same thing. The prophet sat at the potter's house watching the potter make things, and God says, I'm the potter, you're the clay. You got to a place that didn't work, you tore it down and started all over again. God can do that with us because he is God. We're his, and we're to pay homage to him and say, I am willing to do whatever you want. That's hard. <laughs> I'm, I'm the first one to admit it is hard because I have plans for my life. I had lots of plans for my life. Most of them didn't come true for my plans. But to be able to say, God, I'm willing to take whatever you're bringing my way, whatever you want to have for me. And I can tell you the one thing I know is God has a good plan for you. You know, he has a good plan for me. And if we will just bow our knees to the plan that he wants, we're going to be better off. Now, the really good news is even when we struggle and fight against him, he'll still get something out of the deal. It may not have been what he would have given us if we were uh, uh, committed at the earlier days and, and turned to him. But he will still use it. He will still create something out of us, and he'll still make it beautiful and good. But instead of being the six-foot pot, we might be a three-foot pot. <laughs> you know, uh, or a two-foot pot. <laughs> but he's got a plan. He's got a plan, and he will make it work out. And you know, this is the beautiful thing that we have. What has God got in our, in our life? We don't know. As Paul said, you know, some, of, some of you are going to be you know, the, the choice dish on the table, and some of you might be the chamber pot. And we don't know, but if that's what God says is to be my lot, then I'll be happy being whatever it is he's going to say to do and not be seeking that glory. Because in our flesh, we want all the glory. God, look what I have done. You know, uh, and this is a danger for a lot of pastors. They start building a good ministry. People are growing. The church is growing. And then going, wow, look at all that I have done. You're in trouble if you get to that point. If you've got a ministry and you're looking at, look what I have done, you're in trouble. Because if it's not what God has done, it's not going to stand up. You know, I thank God all the time as I look at the God's changing of your lives and all I get to do, I get to teach the Word of God, which I love to do. I get to teach the Word of God. You all take the Word of God and get changed by God and, and I get to watch how everybody changes. It's a wonderful thing. God, gets, God does the work. All I get to do, teach the Word. And I love teaching the Word. And I know that I'm a part of that change, but I am not the driving change on it. Because anybody could have been sitting here teaching the Word of God seeing the lives changed because it's the spirit that makes the life change and that's the wonderful thing where are we when we look at God are we look look at me look how look how I've changed look how I'm 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 this you know whatever uh, and something that you know all of us are in that place God is changing us we can to be careful never to look at you know look at what I have become let's what is God making me into 
because we kind of go, well, God, look, you know, you're so, you're so good to have me here, God. Look at all the changes I have made. And if it wasn't for me doing this, this wouldn't have happened. And God, you know, I've been in God, I've been in your word and I've been doing this and I've been doing this and, and look how I'm changing. We're in a dangerous place when we start thinking that way for a number of reasons. Number one, we're taking credit for what God is doing. Number two, we're starting to get a big head and Satan is going to get hold of us and take us down. And then it's like, oh, well, gee, what, what just happened? And then when we fall down, we're not going to blame ourselves for separating ourselves from God. We're going to turn around and go, God, how can you let something like this happen to me? Look how at all these good things that I have been doing for you and all of a sudden this happened. And we've got to be very careful about all of this because in our worship, it's all about God. When we stand before God, and I've said this, you know, when I get to heaven, I can picture myself spending the first you know, millennia or so just staring at Jesus and being happy that I'm there because I don't belong there. And it's all his grace. And I'll be looking at the one who gave himself for me, seeing the scars. And that's going to be a scary thought. I don't know how many scars he's going to have when he's in heaven. But it does talk about him appearing in heaven as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And when you read about the scriptures of what he went through for us, that he was barely recognizable as a man, I don't know if he's going to look that bad in heaven or not. He's got his glorified body, but it does say he bears the scars. It does show that he shows the scars. And Revelation talks about the only thing that has any scars in heaven is Jesus. Now, whether it'll only be the nails and the and the, the, the crown, I don't know. But he took a lot more pain and suffering than those. And this is the problem. Most of us always just think about, oh, he took the nails for us. He took a crown of thorns. He took a beating. He took a scourging where they literally stripped his back of all of the skin and exposed the muscles. You know, he took an extreme amount of pain. Will he show all of those scars? I don't know. You know, I don't know how much the lamb slain before the foundation of the world is going to look like in heaven. Uh, but I do expect that we're going to very least see the scars in his, in his hands and his feet and possibly his side at the very least, if not more. Now, will he bear that all the way through eternity? I don't know. I hope not. I don't know how I could not be broken into tears by seeing the great cost of my salvation. And I know there's no tears in heaven, so I just don't know how he could bear all those marks for all of eternity. Because I don't even know how I could even begin to look at it, when I, especially when I know what it would look like because I've studied the crucifixion so heavily. I don't know how I could look at him and not break into tears that you did this for me. It would be, it would be brokenhearted like, I'm here and that's what it cost. That is what it costs. So I'm not sure that he will bear it for all of eternity, but at least in the first part of Revelation, we see him as the land slain before the foundation of the earth when he takes out the scrolls and breaks the seals. Does he change after that to be more glorified and beautiful? I don't know. But, you know, it's very intriguing when we think about this. The high cost of our salvation and how lightly do we treat it so often in this world? Well, Jesus died so I can get saved. Yeah, well, that's very true. 
How did he die? What did he get? What pain and suffering did he go through? And then just not the physical pain, but the, the father turned his back on Jesus on the cross. And that is a pain that we can't even truly fathom. You know, as I've said, you know, if you think about our first love, you know, that first boyfriend or girlfriend that we had, it was a real solid crush, and then when it broke up, and we felt like the world had ended, we'd get over it pretty quick, but Jesus and the Father would not get over it that quick. This was a relationship that had always been in existence for all of time and all of non-time. <laughs> And for a moment in time, it was broken. And we can't even begin to fathom that cost. You know, compared to that cost, the physical pain was nothing. He took all the physical pain, and it wasn't until the father turned his back that he yelled, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was all of a sudden in great agony. He had become sin, and the father turned his back on him. It was an emotional pain that he went through at that point. Now, he had lots of physical pain as well, but yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't the physical pain that drove him to say, I've been forsaken. He took on the sin of the world. The father turned his back because he could not have fellowship with sin. And consequently, the Holy Spirit would have turned, had to turn his back. So for the first time in all of his existence, which is forever, he was separated from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And that was what really broke him. You know, that relationship that was broken for a short period of time broke him. And that is the cost of our salvation, and that should drive us into worship. When we really think about what he paid for us should drive us to give him honor and glory and adoration and great homage. And I hate to be so you know, hard on this, but this is really what it is. Because you know, we forget the price of our salvation. We forget all of, all of what it takes. And just treat him as, you know, well, Jesus is the, bride, is the bridegroom. We can just run into his arms and get a, get a hug anytime we want. The father is Abba Father, Daddy Father. We can run up and crawl on his lap. And yes, all of that is true. But we cannot forget the honor due to him and the relationship that is even higher than that relationship. The God of the universe, the King of the universe, who is, we're entering into his presence. And we have to walk that fine line between being too awestruck and not wanting to come into his presence and too familiar, which it's hard to be too familiar because he is, you know, he says, Abba, Father. He does, Jesus is the bridegroom, so it's hard to be too familiar, but we also have to keep that awe. It's the, from the old days when they talked about the fear of your father. You know, you wanted to love your father, you care for your father back in the good families. <laughs> you know, you cared about your father, you loved your father, you'd give him a hug, but you also had that stand back and say, he's also the, the, the head of the family and the disciplinarian or whatever other terms were, were there. So there was that constant give and take of the relationship. You know, the loving relationship, hugs and, and have fun and that idea that this is, this is dad, you know, and dad. Now, I know that Satan has destroyed that relationship and there are many people that have never had that kind of a relationship, you know, with their father. But that is the relationship that we are to have with God. 
the one where we love him, ready to give him a hug and spend time enjoying ourselves and the recognition that he is very, very important. And we didn't get very far, but I, I knew I was going to talk about worship today. I didn't expect it to take the entire time, but we took half, half, half the study talking about other things before we started. So we're going to end here. <laughs> Verse 2. Oh, That's as far as I got. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, help us to understand worship and our relationship with you in a mighty and strong way. We ask you to go with us, teach us to worship, teach us to follow you in all that we do, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.